The scripture reading for this morning is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll be reading to 14 verse 23. And as we sang in this day as well, they had those who said, flee like a bird to the, ma- that to the mountain wings, for look, the wicked bend their blow- bows for slaying. This is at the beginning of the reign of Saul, and he's facing opposition already from the surrounding nations. In this particular case, he's facing the, the rage of the Philistines. We'll read together from 1 Samuel 13. And you'll be able to find that on page 324 of your pew Bible. Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent away, every man to his own tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it, and said that Saul had attacked the garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled And offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Saul, Jonathan his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. 
But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road of Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon. And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. But all the Philistines would go down, all the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and axes, and to set the points on the goads. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear to be found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan, but they were found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other. And the name of one was Bozaz and the name of the other was Sena. The front of one faced northward, opposite of Michmash, and the other southward, opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Then Jonathan said, Very well, let us cross over to these men and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say thus to us, Wait until we come to you, then we'll stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand, and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you something. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And as he came after him, his armor-bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about 20 men within about a half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and there was the multitude melting away, and they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, 
Now, call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to battle, and indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim when they, heard the Philistines, when they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle shifted to Bethaven. So far, the word of God. The text that we'll be focusing on in particular is, So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle shifted to Bethaven. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, many of us are familiar with the life of King David. As we follow him from a youth, when he so famously killed the giant Goliath, to his elevation in leadership later, we're filled with interest. For young boys especially, but maybe for all of us to a certain extent, we feel connected with David as we see his rise from these humble beginnings. David rose up under the Lord's blessing from humble roots, not even considered to be very popular within his own family. But the Lord blessed him and raised him up until he was crowned the king of all Israel. But while most of us are very familiar with King David himself, We don't always notice the figures that are in the sidelines too often, do we? Over the next number of weeks, I'd like to spend a few Sundays in the life of Jonathan as he comes up in the book of 1 Samuel and to take some time to reflect on this character whom God placed in the life of King David. David was God's beloved king. David was the man who Isaiah, the the man who Samuel had described as the man after God's own heart who would come after King Saul. But without the Lord placing Jonathan in David's life, much of what David was able to accomplish would never have come to pass. If the Lord had not shaped Jonathan to be such an unselfish, courageous, loyal friend, he would have fallen to the intrigues and to the wickedness of, Saul's, of Jonathan's father, King Saul. Jonathan, whose name was Yahweh's gift. His name was Yahweh's gift. He truly was a gift from the Lord to David and to the people of Israel as a whole. But what's even more interesting is how Jonathan, in his own way, also foreshadows Christ. He foreshadows our Lord and Savior who described himself as a friend to his disciples and his followers, a friend who became our brother, John 15, 15. 
So today we'll be introduced to the man, Jonathan, as we find him here in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, even before he meets David. And we'll look at him under the following theme and points. Jonathan, Yahweh's gift. We'll see, first of all, introducing Jonathan. Secondly, the contrast of the king and his son. And third, the Lord's deliverance through the son. In our passage today, we're introduced to Jonathan as a fierce warrior. Now, there's some debate around the ages of Saul and Jonathan at this point in time. If you have a different translation, you'll likely see that verse 1 of our passage has a few different numbers in them. This is one of the few places in the Old Testament in which the Hebrew is a little unclear. In our translation, the New King James, you'll find what the Hebrew text that has been passed down to us says. If you have a new international version, you'll find that they lean on the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. They lean on that for their numbers. They also include a number from the book of Acts in the NIV when it speaks about how long Saul reigned. Now, there's some debate to how legitimate these numbers are. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter how long Saul had reigned or how long uh, Jonathan how old Jonathan was at this point. Because what is important for us to know is what we can find from the rest of Scripture here. So what can we see? At this point, this is early in the reign of Saul. Jonathan's father, Saul, has just been anointed king and he's settling into the role. Jonathan has been appointed to the position of leading a division of the army. He's leading about a third of the army here. Now, according to Jewish law, you had to be about 20 years old to go to war. Numbers 1 verse 3. So keeping this in mind, Jonathan was likely a little bit over 20 years old at the time, which would probably put his father closer to 40. Seeing how young Jonathan is right now and knowing that he's still living in an age in which he's one of those young people who feels like he's invincible, like it'll never be themselves that fall in war. You see a little bit of that coming through in Jonathan himself. At the same time, though, we see an interesting thing unfolding in the way that Jonathan looks at the world. Jonathan is not one of those people who is looking for his own personal glory as such. He's not someone who is looking to enhance his own reputation. Instead, he's looking towards the reputation and the name of the Lord in this. Take a look at what he says in 14 verse 6 here for a moment. He says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. We can see two things in what he says there. First of all, we see that Jonathan takes the covenant name of the Lord on his lips. That's what the Lord in all caps is, Yahweh. This is a name of relationship. This is the equivalent of a woman saying to the man that she's married to, my husband, or a man saying to the woman, my wife. This is the special name that God gave his people 
to use this name is to recognize that God has a special relationship with you and that he has laid claim to you as a member of his covenant. He's young, and yet he still has this love for the Lord in his heart. He's young, but he's still committed. He still pursues the Lord. You don't have to be older. You don't have to be settled in life to have your heart set on the Lord. This can come from the earliest of ages. Now, this might not seem like a big deal that he takes the name of the Lord on his lips. But if you contrast that with King Saul in chapter 15, that's the chapter that follows after, here you find King Saul saying to Samuel while talking of God, he says, the Lord, your God. There's a big difference here. For Jonathan, his faith is real. God has laid claim on him, and he in turn has laid claim on his Lord. He's a young guy around the age of those who are doing profession of faith. And yet he freely and openly talks about the Lord in a way that shows he has a relationship with him. And he trusts him not just on a personal level, but he trusts him to be the God who can save his people on a national level. You can see this in 14 verse 6 as well. As we read, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. He's talking about the salvation of Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. God is a God who goes beyond Jonathan's own personal life. He has a relationship with all of his people. And because of this, Jonathan includes what's best for all of God's people in this. This is something that becomes especially important later in life when he comes to realize that David is the one that God wants as king on the throne of Israel instead of Saul and Jonathan. He already shows the beginnings of it here, that he is a man who is willing, a young man, who is willing to give up everything that he is and knows so that the Lord will work salvation for his people. Jonathan looks to the Lord to give him the victory and he freely offers his own life to the Lord's service. It doesn't rest on how many people are involved. The Lord can save using many people or using few. It's his will that is carried out. It's the attitude of Psalm 20, verse 7, that he takes in life. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of Yahweh, our God. We remember the Lord, our God. If the Lord wants to bring salvation for his people, he will bring salvation. And he believes this. This brings us to our second point, the contrast of the king and his son. What a contrast the view of Jonathan is with that of his dad. 
It can be sad for a child to see his father struggling in the faith. And yet that's the position that Jonathan finds himself in. King Saul is much more worried about the outcome of the fight. His son's gone into battle, and his son has provoked their enemies, the Philistines. And Saul begins to go through the motion of trusting in the Lord, but he very quickly shows that his dependence on the Lord is in name only. He's willing to go so far, but no further. And you can see this coming out in the sacrifice that he offers here in chapter 13 that we read about. Saul was waiting for Samuel who would carry out his sacrifice. But what was the point of this? Why was he waiting? What was Samuel going to do? The point of this sacrifice was to show Israel's dependence on the Lord in the face of the upcoming battle. It was sending a message to God that we trust you. That we want to be clean of our sins before you and we are putting our faith in you for what is coming ahead. But as time wore on and Samuel didn't appear, the Israelites began to slip away. And Saul, seeing his army slip away, decided, let's get this over with before the whole army disappears. And he carried out the sacrifice himself. He's got excuses later, but we can see the Lord revealing to us his motivation even before it comes. No sooner had he sacrificed than Samuel shows up and asks him, what have you done? First of all, Saul was not waiting on the Lord. What began as a declaration of dependence on God just became a formal and outward symbol for him. He offered offered lip service to God to make sure that he had checked off all of the religious boxes so that he could just go ahead and do what he wanted to do. And by doing this, Saul had turned this whole event from Israel showing that they depended on the Lord to Saul showing that he was only willing to depend on the Lord until it became too risky. And then Saul depended on Saul. The second problem was that Saul had not been allowed to offer the sacrifice at all. This was Samuel's job. Saul was taking on the job of a servant of the Lord in order to try keep his army together when he wasn't allowed to do that in the first place. And because of this, the Lord punishes Saul. Now looking at this, we can say, well, that wasn't very bright of Saul. He should have seen what was coming. And that's easy to say from our perspective. We see the consequences of his actions and we see how the Lord delivered Israel anyways just as he had decided to do. But we're looking back on it now and as they say, hindsight is 20-20. Take this from Saul's perspective for a moment. He's looking around him and his troops are are melting away. They see him waiting for Samuel to carry out the sacrifice and they know what the sacrifice represents. They feel like if the sacrifice doesn't happen, then the Lord won't be with them. And if the Lord isn't with them, then it's certain that the enemy armies, who are actually bigger than their own armies are, it's certain 
that they will overwhelm them. And so in order to keep up morale, Saul does what he believes will keep as much as possible of his army present and happy. He does the sacrifice himself. Now this is understandable from the point of view of human wisdom. Just like many decisions that we make seem rational and understandable from a human perspective. We can say, what would you have done if you were in my shoes? You would have done the exact same thing. But that doesn't make it any less sin. It doesn't make us any less liable to face the justice of God just because it made sense to us at the time. And this is something that we need to be aware of. But there's more that we need to be aware of. We like to see ourselves in Jonathan who boldly climbs the hill telling his friend, if God wants to bring salvation, he can do it by many or by few. The problem is we're not Jonathan in this story. We could try to spin a moral lesson out of this and say, be like Jonathan and you'll have the victory. You'll live out a victorious life. The reality is, though, we're not Jonathan. We may have times when we face decisions in life and we do lean on the Lord, and then, praise God, he does deliver us from sin, from temptation, from a bad situation. But we also have times when we don't lean on the Lord. So it's not a question of don't be like Saul and be like Jonathan. The truth of the matter is that we're not Jonathan. You and I, we're Saul. We're Saul. When the going gets tough, so often we're more inclined to say, I'm going to lean on my own understanding here and try to figure it out on our own. And we're weak. And our attempt to patch things up may slow down the number of people who are scattering, but it still only leaves us vastly outnumbered and completely hopeless in the face of the enemy. Look at Saul in verse 2. 3,000 men, and even later, after he tries to patch things up, 600 men against 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and many more besides completely outclassed by his enemy, completely surrounded and without hope in the world. We're Saul. But where man fails, God provides deliverance through the Son. This brings us to our third point, the Lord's deliverance through the Son. Jonathan slips away from the main host of his army and he puts into action his conviction that the Lord can grant salvation whether through many or through few. All that it requires is for the Lord to be the one at work. And the Lord exceeds his wildest expectations. We see three things coming to pass in quick succession, one after the other. First, Saul and his armor bearer make a decision in which they leave the outcome to the Lord. 
It's important to recognize what he's doing here before we decide to throw our lives away recklessly, going after whatever we want, personal glory. The situation is this, that Israel is facing disaster. They're facing being wiped out. Standing still and doing nothing is just as dangerous as, at this point as actually going ahead and doing something. But Jonathan's goal in doing what he is doing is the glory of God and the salvation of God's people. If he wants to save them, then Jonathan wants to commit to being an instrument in the Lord's hand. And so he places himself in a position in which the Lord can choose him if he decides to use him for delivering the people. He makes himself ready. He commits himself. And then he waits for the Lord and he asks for the Lord to open a door. As a side note, by the way, this is something to recognize when we're sharing the gospel as well. God saves through his son, but he uses people as instruments to share the gospel. And we can go through life shrinking back, or we can go through life asking God, asking God to use us as instruments, choosing to stand prepared if he chooses to call on us, and then seizing the opening if the Lord chooses to grant us. We don't need to be impressive, good speakers or great people. We just need to be ready. The Lord can save by many or by few. The Lord can save by someone who's great or by someone who is little. But at the end of the day, that's not what the passage is about. First of all, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they offer themselves up freely to the Lord. Second, the Lord confirms this decision by letting the Philistines use the exact same words as Jonathan had used to show that this door is open. And third, the Lord routes the Philistines before Jonathan and his armor bearer. He uses this moment to cause terror in their ranks and he makes his terror contagious. He drives them back. He causes creation itself to turn against them as he quakes the earth. And look at verse 21 of chapter 14 here. You may not have noticed this on the first reading. But these Hebrew mercenaries, soldiers for hire, seeing that the Lord was involved in battle, they, would, they were caused by the Lord to turn on their Philistine employers, making the Israelite numbers swell. Interesting, eh? The Lord gave them salvation too even though they had fought for the enemy. Moreover, the Israelites who had hidden in holes in the ground and in the mountains of Ephraim, they rose up and they were filled by the Lord with courage. At the end of the day, it was shown that this wasn't Jonathan's victory. The victory was the Lord's. And so we read in the final verse of our passage, so the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle shifted to Bethaven. Notice the covenant name of the Lord here again. By the capital letters, the Hebrew name Yahweh. The author is reminding the people that it's not because of the righteousness of the people. It's not because of the strength of the people. Saul had proven his unfaithfulness by the unlawful sacrifice he offered. The people had proven their lack of trust when they melted in fear or when they even signed themselves up as mercenaries for the enemy. 
But it's because the Lord is our covenant God that when we turn to him, we can rely on him. He has established a relationship with us. And it's when we lean on that relationship instead of choosing to leave it behind and rely on our own understanding that God brings salvation. It's God who makes it possible for us to do this. And so we are called by the power of God to lean on him, to repent of our sins, to turn away from where we were, even if we were in the enemy's camp for a time, to turn away from where we were, to put behind us all of our self-justifications, our explanations for what we did that was wrong. Don't justify yourself. Rely on the Son and lean on Him alone for salvation. This was what was modeled and what was foreshadowed through the actions of Jonathan. Jonathan, Yahweh's gift to the people of God. God had granted salvation by his gift of the son of the king to the people of God. God has granted us the gift to whom Jonathan pointed forward. Jesus Christ, the son of the king, Jesus, whose very name means the Lord saves. So the Lord saved Israel. Jesus, the Lord saves. Jonathan eventually goes on to face a tragic end on the battlefield at the end of his life. The Lord saved Israel through him this one time, but that final time he failed. This son, however, will never fail. Christ was raised up to work out God's salvation plan. And his victory over sin and the devil on the cross brought a salvation that is unshakable. And if you believe in him, if you lean on him, if you trust in him, this salvation is yours. You may have committed sins that deeply shame you. You may feel like there's no hope for you. You may feel like those Israelite mercenaries who for a time fought on the side of the enemy. But the Son has redeemed you. He grants you salvation. His salvation is a free gift of grace. Only repent and turn to him and find redemption and salvation in the coming of the son of the king. The last day is coming when his victory will be final and complete. Fight in the freedom that you're given by him for righteousness, for holiness, for purity and truth. Offer yourself up on that day and on this, giving yourself, committing yourself completely to his cause, leaning on his wisdom and his strength alone, and rejoice with the son of the king in that final day, because his victory is certain. Amen.